David Smith of Motorsports Analytics. On this episode, a deep dive into crew chiefs, what makes them good, how they should be judged, and who deserves a shot at the big time. That plus our big Martinsville preview, what a time that will be under the lights. But first, as always, this is episode 85 of Positive Regression. This is the Emmanuel Zervakis edition. David, another one where, admittedly, I had to say, who? But it did send me down, you know, the rabbit hole of research. So Emmanuel Zervakis, an old schooler, man. His first cup race was on the beach course in Daytona in 1956. He made 83 cup starts, had two wins, and both of them were in the number 85. David, tell us more. You pick it for a reason. What stands out about Mr. Zervakis? Well, the name for one, <laughs> yeah. uh, the, he, he was known as both the Golden Greek and the Flying Greek. Both appeared on his car, uh, right uh, above, uh, above the window and underneath the window. Uh, he was the son of a Greek immigrant father and a Native American mother. But more importantly, Zervakis was hailed as a driver in those early days of NASCAR with good car knowledge and mechanical skills. He became creative, we'll say, with uh, the rules in some cases. In 1960, he won a race at Wilson Speedway, but he was disqualified after <laughs> Joe Weatherly, who finished second, dimed him out. Zervakis was using an illegal fuel tank. Weatherly was awarded the victory. Legend has it, Weatherly was asked by competitors how he knew Zervakis was running an illegal tank. And he replied, because I was running the same one he was. <laughs> so there, there you go, a little friendly fire. Um, but Zervakis, uh, like I said, car knowledge guy, also a good driver. Uh, he actually injured his knee in a crash at Southside Speedway in 1964. That is uh, the reason for his short career. He immediately retired from driving, instantly became a car owner and an engine builder. He had a team that made spot starts in both the Cup Series and what is now the Xfinity Series until 1984. Alan, I think you've heard a few of the drivers making those starts for Zervakis. They included Jeff Bodine, Mark Martin, Morgan Shepard, Ricky Rudd, and Dale Jarrett. Wow. And Zervakis would later open Stock Car Products, which was a popular vendor in the NASCAR industry for years. So, yeah, didn't have that long of a driving career, but influential across three decades. Sure. And just learning more about him. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, right? I, I told you 83 cup starts. He had 40 top tens, David. So no slouch. I mean, I know it was a different era and look, hell, he was racing on the beach, like I said, but uh, almost half your time in the top 10, not a bad, not a bad career to have. Not at all. And a, a pretty good scout, I would say, just based <laughs> yeah. on the names that he would uh, pluck from uh, relative obscurity, put them in his race car. Um, pretty cool little story for Emmanuel Zervakis. Wasn't a name that I was familiar with, uh, but happy to research it. And uh, lo and behold, an interesting guy. Good find, good research. My big fat Greek driver, Emmanuel Zervakis. Episode 85 of Positive Regression, dedicated to him. All right, let's start, David, because we are going to talk about crew chiefs and their role 
in success in the modern NASCAR era. Uh, we talk rightfully so much about drivers, right, and their performance. We do it every week. But sometimes I think we overlook the role of the crew chief. David, I, I always appreciate your spider charts, and I hope uh, the listeners know what that is. If not, go on Motorsports Analytics and look up some of the spider charts. But it's a cool way of visualizing all the different ways to get track position, right? And half of the categories on a spider chart are directly tied to a decision, right, or a cr- that a crew chief makes. So, you know, that's half the reason a car is running where it is, if not more, when you look at a spider chart and the way of gaining track position out there. So because of that, I, I thought we should take a look at some of the decisions that are made and some of the ones that are crew chiefs who may be underrated. So we're going to drill into some of the details. But, David, we're going to start it off by looking into the big news this week. And the big news was that Rudy Fugel, was tapped to be the next crew chief for rising cup star William Byron in the cup series. Of course, Fugel has spent much of his time as crew chief in the truck series, winning multiple championships. But in terms of being a crew chief, no time in the cup series. So this is a big move for Rudy. It seems well-earned, but let's discuss, David. How do you evaluate this big move? This is difficult because Fugel does not have a discernible crew chiefing profile, good or bad, just regarding his pit strategy acumen. And he was just named uh, the replacement for Chad Canal. So uh, interesting. Um, firstly, I will say good for Rudy because not everyone working in a lower division is going to get a shot like this. So when it happens, when it when the job does not go to a, a recycled name, uh, I think we should mark the occasion. Good for him. It was a, a promotion well-earned. Now, that said, what got him there? I mean, you've seen it. I think it's speed. I think it's the speed of the Kyle Busch Motorsports trucks, the success of that program. Some of that, obviously, was carried by Kyle Busch, but Rudy Fugel won championships with Eric Jones and Christopher Bell. He won a race with Noah Gragson. He won a race last year somehow with Greg Biffle. And of course, his marquee season to date was his seven wins in 2016 with William Byron. So fast trucks for a variety of drivers. And he's been referred to as a good leader. Uh, I've gotten some feedback on this, Alan. From where I sit, I don't know who is a true leader of men, right? We we can't really guess that from here, but Rudy seems to get good all-around marks in this regard, and that's good too. But as I said, what we really don't know of him is whether he is a good enough strategist on par with you know, not just the likes of Childers and Gabe Hart and some of these other smart crew chiefs we've been talking about. Is he a good enough strategist to replace a good strategist? The 24 team had that with Chad Canals. 85 spots gained on green flag pit cycles this year. Well, since the advent of stages and before that, Alan, the caution clock, people seem to forget about that. <laughs> that one season. Truck Series crew chiefs don't have many opportunities to showcase whether they are good enough strategists for the Cup Series. Uh, At the very least, if they are good, 
it's sort of not possible to know beyond what we see in a small sample size. So let's consider this. In the Cup Series this season, there have been 41 green flag pit cycles. In the Truck Series, there have been just five. So strategy in this series is limited, contained somewhat just by the nature of the rules and the low mileage contests that they have. The tire, um, the tire allocation is something I ask every week, right? True. Because yes. Only, I mean, you go in, if you have only have four sets of tires, you're making three pit stops, right? You, so you have three sets of tires and the one you start the truck on. There's not much strategy to be made there in some of these truck races. So you're in a box yes. already. And, and that, and there is no box in the cup series, which I think is fair to say. So it does become difficult to evaluate crew chiefs in lower divisions like the truck series for potential cup jobs. Yeah. And we'll kind of go, this conversation will go all over the place for a little bit. We'll, we'll cross sections and come back to Rudy and stuff, if you will. But David, you mentioned speed, you know, uh, you can measure a crew chief based on the speed of his vehicle. How should we interpret that? I mean, that he's a good engineer. He knows how to build a truck. He knows how to build a race vehicle. Put that in layman's terms. When you say, you know, they've got speed, so that must mean what the crew chief is, you know, has something between his ears in terms of a, a good brain. <laughs> yeah. If you can coke speed out of a race car, regardless of the driver, the year, the rule package, there's something to be said for that. That is a talent. Alan, to me, that is step one of all of this. Even in the cup series, it's taken a bit of a blow on some tracks this year, but 40% of the time, the fastest car wins. If you have the ability to have the fastest vehicle in any series that you're competing in, that is proof of something. It might be a lot of resources. It might be efficient use of those resources. With Rudy Fugel, it's easy to say he had Kyle Busch as his driver for a number of those wins, and that was the difference maker. Maybe that's true, but he didn't have Kyle Busch all the time, and he's been dealing primarily with young drivers making their initial starts at the NASCAR national level, seeing tracks for the first time, and when you consider that he has always had fast vehicles, regardless of the driver, and he's competed for championships with those drivers and won as frequently as he has then there's something to be had there. Uh, the strategy element might not matter in that regard. I think that he is bound for Hendrick Motorsports on a quest to make that 24 car faster. Okay. Uh, and certainly you, you, you would believe he was the only candidate, right? And so what I'm getting at is in terms of trying to scout or evaluate, I'm sure the relationship he had with William Byron and the success they had weighed heavily into that. But on the scouting side of things, David, you were a professional scout in terms of looking for driver talent. That, that was your job. That's what you went out there and did uh, for many years. Do you think that's possible from uh, the crew chief aspect of it? Can you scout crew chief talent in terms of those in lower divisions and who may be good up in cup or who may deserve that kind of shot? What, what matters most to you or what do you think should matter most to someone potentially trying to scout out a good crew chief? Well, it's not impossible. I think it is tricky. The stage era has made it tricky to value good strategists if they are 
indeed out there. Uh, before the restriction on cup drivers in the Xfinity series, we would see crew chiefs with cup drivers take some very interesting risks. Maybe they would uh, not worry too much about stage points or they wouldn't compete for points directly. They would take those big swings because they were competing for wins and because they had cup drivers in their cars, their plans panned out. So how do you weigh that decision-making against a series that largely is competing for points with smaller teams and less experienced drivers, that is very tricky. So I don't know. I think the Cup Series is becoming its own beast with the evolved aero packages, the Hawkeye inspection system. It's tough. I know Rudy Fugel worked for Robert Yates Racing way back when, but it's a different series now than it was over 15 years ago. The the pace of the week and the weekends are probably similar, but everything else has changed from a rules standpoint. And from the sounds of it, beating the inspection station is half the battle. <laughs> it's imperative that Rudy Fugel now surrounds himself with a strong supporting cast with recent relevant experience in the cup series, because again, the goal, as far as I can tell, the reason that he's the higher over anybody else is because of his ability to conjure speed. That 24 car ranked 12th in central speed this year. And that's good for playoff qualification, but not much else. Uh, in fact, William Byron has had the fastest car in a cup race exactly once in his career, and that was the Daytona race that he won. So it's a good young driver, stands to reason he might be able to do a lot with a car that's more consistently quick. Uh, if Rudy can't get better speed from the car, then his hiring won't be successful. Now, can we scout for that? Can we evaluate that? It's not clear that we... Uh, can because all of the responsibilities that fall on a crew chief nowadays are measured independently and not always frequently because these new young crew chiefs are coming from lower divisions that do not have the same rules. Yeah, and that's why the transition can be tough to make. I mean, if anything, not 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 a knock against Rudy, but I mean, this is the what the final year of Gen Six, right? Or twenty twenty one will be. So I just think of all these crew chiefs that have what five six years experience. I forget exactly what year it came in, but uh, of experience with this car, right? And now you expect Rudy to come in and and be new at this, uh, a whole different series, whole different rules, uh, all the pressure that comes with it. You're going up against a lot of experience in terms of your competition, that's going to be tough, I would think, for anybody, right? Yeah. You know, I'm actually wondering how much leeway do you give a rookie crew chief? You know, we we spent last week talking about rookies and crashing and teams giving young drivers leeway. It's almost as if the same thing is going to have to happen because he is new. He has not been around the cut block for a while, and it's changed since the last time he's been there. Uh, it's going to be tough. We, we've praised Mike Shiplett all season for his pit strategy, but the speed was intermittent 
And it, there's progress made on that as that team eventually qualified and, and went into the playoffs. But that wasn't out of the gate. That wasn't initial. Uh, recall Daniel Hemrick talking, uh, talking with him last year, uh, and about how he and Danny Stockman together in 2019 really struggled with the pace of the Cup Series. Both of them were quote unquote rookies in the Cup Series. And that was difficult. So there are going to be some growing pains on the crew chief's part. That's going to be something to consider if you're a team looking to make a move to increase William Byron's lot in life. David, we are a podcast that prides itself on metrics and analytics and digging down and showing you sheer data and numbers you might not get anywhere else. But is it fair to talk about some of the intangibles when it comes to the crew chief driver relationship and if they get along, if you will? One example I'll bring up is Bubba Wallace and Jerry Baxter, right? That was a new cupside relationship this year, uh, a rehash of an old uh, truck series uh, relationship that they had in terms of driver and crew chief, but they, they've seen to succeed in terms of, you know, the equipment they were given. Now, what, I, what I've learned from you with David though is, you know, Jerry Baxter has, he has maximized what they needed to do, right? I mean, one part of that, what makes them successful relatively this year is that they have, they have played to their strengths and that is the, the late, race speed and done what they had to to improve their position in terms of where they should finish in terms of their speed. They're finishing better than where they run normally, and that has to do with some of Jerry Baxter's decisions. But it seems like there's also a comfortability there between driver and crew chief. Is it fair to factor some of those intangibles in? Oh, yeah, because I think it's it's comfort, but it's familiarity, and it's 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 having that familiarity that allows you to hit the ground running. Uh, before the season started, I talked with Ryan Blaney about this, and this was Ryan Blaney's first season with Todd Gordon as a crew chief. And if you think about when Blaney came into the Cup Series, the only crew chief he'd worked with previously was Jeremy Bullins. And he told me it was like learning a new language. That familiarity was gone. Now, the speed's been there for Ryan Blaney. That that was apparent very early, but were they on the same page? That's a good question. And with Byron and Fugel, it it might be the opposite. They they might not have initial speed as they're getting their uh, their druthers right, just trying to understand how they can be successful together in the Cup Series. But they certainly speak the same language. They won seven wins together in the truck series. This is a relationship that wasn't just thrown together. It was one that worked, potentially should have won a championship. Remember, he blew an engine in the penultimate race at Phoenix, and then he ended up winning at Homestead. If he just gets through, they win that championship. So... It's likely one that Byron signed off on, but it's also one that I would imagine he has to feel comfortable with. And if Fugel can check off at least some of these other boxes uh, of, of crew chief responsibilities, then yeah, this familiarity is a plus. Why wouldn't it be? Absolutely. And then just the, the general role of a Cup Series crew chief nowadays is something we should also, I mean, have to look at in terms of, you know, they're, 
I don't think they're getting their hands as dirty, literally, you know, as they used to in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Right. You don't envision Chad Knauss under a car anymore, uh, you know, turning wrenches and literally putting things together. I mean, everything is so specialized now. The science, the the simulation, everything that I, I want to say, you know, a crew chief's role is more of a, a team manager and making sure it all works together. You know, talking to our friends in the garage, it's that the strength of a crew chief is knowing every single aspect of the aero department, of the engine department, of the setup, of the fabricators. They're the ones that have to keep all of that together and then strategize, right? And then work with their engineers about race strategy and then uh, what have you, work with their tire specialists about tire wear during a race. I mean, the multitasking, I think, is what separates the best crew chiefs. And then the, the, the interpersonal relationships, right? You got to communicate with each other. I think that that's where the best crew chiefs sort of separate themselves because it's multitasking times a thousand, it feels like. As I have been writing this entire season about some of these strategy calls gone bad and some of the strategy gone correct and how strategy has essentially dominated this entire year, uh, especially on the mile and a half tracks, it makes me wonder if it is time to explore the IndyCar model, uh, I would call it. In IndyCar, the chief engineer isn't the race strategist. There is no crew chief. There are separations of responsibilities. And and honestly, why why should the onus completely fall on the crew chief for all of this? Why can't someone be talented at making a car fast and making it faster on the fly while someone else focuses on timing the proper strategy. They are two completely different talents and not mutually exclusive. Now, that responsibility has probably been split up in some cases. Uh, we know Richard Childress Racing has done that for a while. Joe Gibbs Racing has some strategy software but when you say that there are only a handful of crew chiefs who do everything well, I think that's fair because the things that we know crew chiefs do are in a, an assortment of completely different things. You know, when I talked about Adam Stevens and whether he would return as Kyle Busch's crew chief, I said he wasn't a bad crew chief. His cars are fast. That's apparent that that part of the gig is fine. It's the other part, the strategy part that was bad this year. And instead of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, another way to go about addressing his vulnerability is support or someone supplementing him, uh, sort of like an offensive coordinator taking play calling duties in football uh, from the head coach or vice versa in some cases. Adam Stevens is a talent that should be coveted by a Cup Series team, but the manner in which his team lost races this year put his strategy under scrutiny. And Alan, I don't think he was miscast when he was first hired, but since he was hired, the sport, especially this year with this rules package, has evolved into something more strategy-centric, 
and the role of the traditional crew, uh, crew chief is now something that seems for him and a lot of others a really lofty expectation that only a few can actually achieve. I'm glad you brought up Stevens because one thing to point out, I mean, over at JGR, they, they have had a ladder system, right, of crew chiefs who is successful in the Xfinity series. Then they move up, right? Adam Stevens, Chris Gabehart. Uh, I think you put Chris Gale on that list, right? Um, uh, I'm sure I'm missing some, so I apologize. But uh, so I, I mentioned those uh, those names because are there any crew chiefs right now, David, in Xfinity trucks who, who should, uh, you know, get the, the, the tap on the shoulder one day? And move up. I mean, is there anyone that stands out to you immediately? Yeah, I thought about a few from the Xfinity series this year. The the two who stand out right now are Brian Wilson, crew chief for Austin Sendrick, and Richard Boswell, crew chief for Chase Briscoe. Uh, they are with Cup Series adjacent programs, as you mentioned, a ladder system. Wilson was the engineer for Brad Keselowski during his Cup Series championship season, so he's at least familiar with the grind of the cup series. Boswell has less cup experience, uh, just a year or so with Hendrick Motorsports, but he clearly can do well as an Xfinity crew chief. But the cup series is a jump equally difficult for, for these crew chiefs as it is for drivers. And I expect for, for anyone making that jump, the shock would hit them initially um, I have to imagine in both of those gentlemen's cases, the Cup Series is is where they're eventually headed. And one crew chief, I honestly didn't have much opinion, good or bad, uh, prior to this year. Jeff Mendering hmm. at Joe Gibbs Racing. Brandon Jones never won in the Xfinity Series until Jeff Mendering was his crew chief. And some of that is Jones's natural development, but also it's a sign potentially of progress. If success with a winless driver is viewed as a rite of passage, then Mendering's hit that and he's in that JGR stable. I'm not sure where he ranks within that pecking order over there. I think lately we've seen Jacob Cantor seems to pop up a lot. Sam McCauley was the interim crew chief when Chris Gabehart was suspended earlier this year. But if results are valued, if progress is something that we can at least um, see with our eyes, Mendering is making an interesting case. What about Dave Ellens over at JRM? I bring him up only because when he's had the shot at full seasons, right, he's got a championship with William Byron, championship with Tyler Reddick. He brought in, you know, was the, with a year with Noah Gregson in 2019 as a rookie. And Noah Gregson was is one corner away you know, a few days ago in Texas from being in the championship for in Phoenix, right? So uh, and in terms of the ladder system, right, you, you know, JRM aff affiliated with Hendrick, you have to believe he at least got a look, right, when trying to come up with a replacement for William Byron. So uh, do, do you put any consideration on Dave Ellens getting the, the tap one day? I thought he was going to be the surefire Chad Canals replacement. How's that? Yeah, I, okay. <laughs> I was, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm not knocking the Rudy Fugel hire. I sort of thought that this was the next logical step, uh, just because that's what Hendrick Motorsports has done in the recent past. Greg Ives was developed as an Xfinity Series crew chief. He was Chase Elliott's championship winning crew chief before he was promoted to replace Steve Letarte as Dale Earnhardt Jr.'s crew chief. 
Uh, and I figured that that was the way to go. That was what Hendrick Motorsports was using Junior Motorsports for. I was wrong on that one, at least based on what I was thinking. Um, but you're right. Again, if we point to success regardless of who is in the race car, then yeah, that's a huge check mark next to Dave Ellens's name. And I would imagine he's going to get that call, if not from Hendrick, then from somebody, because that has to be valued. All right. Good stuff there. I was just, uh, you know, you would think just with the success that his name's going to get out there. Uh, I want to give just a shout out to also over at JRM, David, uh, Taylor Moyer, what he does, he is the crew chief of that eight car that it always seems to have, uh, different drivers in it seemingly every different week. And, uh, you know, maybe not putting him in cup right away, Taylor Moyer, but I would love to see what he would do on a full-time, having one full-time driver and maybe chasing a championship and see how a relationship would blossom there. Because what he's able to do with different drivers is successful, I, I think. You can, um, you know, by any measure, um, with having a different driver rotate through just about every week. But if you give him a full year with one driver, I'd love to see what he'd be capable of and how he would grow from there. So shout out to him. Uh, agreed. And with all due respect to Josh Berry, which is a great story, earning that ride out of late models at Junior Motorsports uh, for the first part of next season. I'm very excited to see what Sam Mayer can do in that eight car. And right now, Taylor Moyer is the crew chief earmarked for that. That could be a lot of fun because what we've seen from Mayer is a young driver who's able to maximize his equipment Taylor Moyer has produced fast cars for a litany of drivers, and that might be the thing that we're waiting to see. Good stuff. Nice, robust discussion about crew chiefing in the Cup Series and NASCAR in general. I, uh, I learned a lot. I hope you guys did, too. Uh, Alan, before we get into our Martinsville race preview, I'd like to let everyone know this segment is sponsored by Resume Writers. Folks, it's 2020. The jobs market has been affected and you may have taken the brunt of it. Take it from me. I know what that is like. It is tough out there, but good news. Resume Writers is here to assist all of us in getting back on our feet. When you engage Resume Writers, you'll take a quick survey. Uh, then their experts will go to work and turn your professional resume around in 72 hours or less, and that is whether you're a recent graduate looking for an entry-level position, a military veteran hoping to transition to civilian life, or an executive looking for a fresh start. Resume Writers also offers what they call an interview guarantee. If your resume doesn't land you a job within the first two months, they'll go back to the drawing board and write you a new resume for free, so give it a try. If you sign up with Resume Writers by going to resume.posregpod, that's P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D.com, you will receive access to a service praised by Time Magazine and rated as the best resume service six years running. You will also help support this podcast. Your next job starts here with Resume Writers, resume.posregpod.com. Good stuff. And let's preview Martinsville, David, because it's one we've been looking forward to all year because it is the last chance to make the championship four in Phoenix. And it's going to be a good one. And it is one of the 750 horsepower tracks. And that's all we have left in the, in the series, David, right? Martinsville and Phoenix, both 750 horsepower tracks. 
So we always talk about the good on that side, but who amongst the heavy hitters are not cutting it when it comes to that bigger, more powerful engine, David? Who should we be looking at? Who should be worried, I guess, uh, when we go to these 750 horsepower tracks, just judging on 2020 alone? <laughs> Who's on notice? Uh, <laughs> no, you know, Chase Elliott was was talking about this in one of his recent availabilities, and he's, uh, you know, a student of the sport, and, and what he said resonated is anyone who's won a championship is able to go out and win at every single racetrack. So even though this sounds negative, I think this is the logical thing to look at going into these final two races to Martinsville, this 750 package. And, you know, there are two names that come to mind. The first is is Alex Bowman. It's not as if He's been bad. Uh, he finished six at Martinsville in the spring, but he ranks 15th in central speed on the 750 tracks. He had the ninth fastest car at Martinsville earlier this year, and that's okay, but we're also at a point where competition is elevated and okay isn't good enough anymore. Similarly, Kurt Busch ranks 12th in central speed on the 750 tracks. And if you look at the other six championship eligible drivers, they, they all rank inside the top seven. Uh, four of them, Elliott, Truex, Harvick, and Hamlin are plus passers on these tracks this year. Logano isn't, but he's already locked into the championship four. And outside of those five, it's Bowman, Bush, and Keselowski who don't have positive passing numbers. And then we have to remember that Mr. Keselowski has won twice on this track type, Richmond and Bristol, earlier this year. So even then, Bowman and Bush, the drivers who don't appear, based on their numbers, don't appear to be suited for these tracks this year. And they're likely going to need it, the help there. So we'll see what they can pull off at Martinsville. Uh, David, I love this next question because we, we collaborate on the ideas and, and kind of the rundown of the show. But uh, the wording here is a very David Smith question. So I love this. For those lacking speed, passing ability, and other traditional markers, what can they do to make up ground during this race? David, if you don't have any of the tools necessary to succeed, what can you do at Martinsville? I guess that's basically what we're asking here. Yeah, I think Monday night David wrote that question. Yeah, that was a good one. Uh, Logano at Phoenix and Kozlowski at Bristol. Those, those stand out here. They won those races because they put themselves in good positions despite lacking race best speed, but they were in good enough positions to capitalize on the pit road mistakes of others. Now, we're not likely to see green flag pit cycles at Martinsville. I think the last time I said that on this show, mm -hmm. uh, it happened and it was mm -hmm. either Bristol or Richmond and I was proven wrong. But based on history, we won't at Martinsville. But what we might see are successive yellows just in a quick spate. And that offers the opportunity for flexibility and creativity in the stop itself, whether it's tires or no stop at all. And either of those things could flip the running order. And if you're Bowman uh, and Bush, respectively, we've seen smart, isolated pit decisions from Greg Ives and Matt McCall this year, but neither of those guys can control how the other cars 
race and they can't control who is around them in the running order. So bring that good enough speed, keep the pass differential thin and keep your head on a swivel. I think one thing that can help in their regard is some honest self-awareness. Alan, I have to imagine, they have to know, right, by virtue of their experience this year, that these tracks aren't their strong suits. So their plans should be to be in good enough position to capitalize when the favorites make calls that are a little too on the nose. And this is the time to be creative. Don't be foolish, but certainly be creative. And most importantly, pay attention to what others are doing. Uh, from that aspect, I mean, what I love about this podcast is that we always kind of talk about the restart dynamic of of each track. And Martinsville, David, there's just some confusion, even in my head, about sometimes the, the, the restart lane and the preferred versus non-preferred at Martinsville. And I only say that because for years, especially growing up, you know, through the 90s, you always wanted to be on the inside because you can get freight train and go straight to the back. Then just recently, at least covering in the trucks, I mean, I covered Noah Gregson's first win where he chose or was on the outside. We didn't have a choose rule then, but he started on the outside of the front row and he took it. He won the race by starting on the outside and, and made the pass from out there. So when it comes to the restarts nowadays, what is the preferred groove or, or what is the dynamic at Martinsville and why is it confusing? You got it right. I think it's confusing because a lot of the logic that is bandied around Martinsville time emanates from the nineties. I think that is, <laughs> it is all just based on what we remember and not what is current. And what is current is that when it comes to this track on restarts, I think it's much ado about nothing. Uh, so last year, different rule package, but we saw retention rates of 77% to 63% favoring the outside groove. Later that year, we saw 77% to 64% favoring the inside groove. And earlier this year, different rule package, the inside was preferred, uh, and that was a wider disparity, 82 to 51. That's bigger than usual. But we also saw a lot of risks taken in that race. Uh, if you recall, Corey LaJoy led the field to green on lap 121. We saw Jimmy Johnson run really well, but struggle with restarts. We saw Bubba Wallace uh, restarted in the top 14 five times by my count. That's rare. It was kind of wild, honestly. <laughs> Folks that we don't see. Michael McDowell was in the fight on all three of the three final restarts. And with all that parody... Amazingly, the front row saw dead even retention rates, 62.5% apiece. The lesson is that if you're a good enough restarter at Martinsville, you'll probably be fine. And this was the place where just a few years ago, we saw a lot of pit road games, a lot of brake dragging on pit road. And it's always sort of been that way. It's always been thought of as a track with a heavy disparity. But that's not – statistically, that's just not the case. That's just not real. If you're good and not throwing a Hail Mary with one of your calls, you're probably going to keep your restart spot. 
So that that's why I think we're going to see a lot of cars come into this race, all these playoffs teams focus on the long run. And it was Martin Truex. I think the final restart came around lap 400 this spring. Martin Truex had a long run car and won Martinsville with a long run car. That might not be the case for the Xfinity or truck races, but for the Cup Series, I think that that might be the uh, where we, where we will see uh, speed come to a head. Truex winning would certainly be a a, a fun win and in and uh, create some drama for us storytellers. That would be uh, that'd be pretty fun if he goes out and wins Martinsville like that. Uh, but we always we don't talk favorites, David. We talk contrarian picks. We talk maybe some surprises that you may not expect to do well and, and try to give you a little love maybe to your DFS or, or fantasy lineups, uh, maybe some value. David, I'll let you go first. Who is your contrarian contender pick for Martinsville? I'm going to go way deep here oh. and just, just a driver who needs a good run. Ryan Priest hmm. has a pair of top 20 finishes at Martinsville since joining JTG Doherty Racing. He currently holds a positive surplus value this season on 750 tracks. So I want to take a roll with him here. I say Ryan Priest scores his first career Martinsville top 15 finish, which would make for his seventh top 20 finish since the start of the playoffs. All right. That is pretty deep. That'll, uh, that's gotta be some good value if you're playing one of those budget games. David, I, I'm not going that deep, unfortunately, but I will pick someone not in the playoff picture anymore. Uh, I'm picking Willie B, William Byron. Uh, I just tried to look at both the data for, uh, passing at, at tracks that are less than, you know, a short track, essentially less than a mile and also speed, the speed charts at the 750 tracks. And where those points crossed, I landed on Willie B. So I think just overall, He's got good, uh, good metrics, good data at a place like Martinsville. And I think he will have, uh, you know, I think he competes for top 10, uh, when they race on Martinsville. Is that, is that fair? He was my contrarian pick, uh, for the spring race at Martinsville and he did get a top 10. So boom, it, uh, boom. Yeah. <laughs> it worked out really well. Yeah. That, that must have seeped into my brain. So I'm glad if David Smith agrees. All right, good stuff. Good episode this week. We are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Podbean, Luminary, and TuneIn. We're available no matter your device. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free at posregpod.com. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a rating or a review. That kind of stuff helps spread the word so much. We do notice, and it is so appreciated. You guys write the nicest things. And just tell a friend. Tell, get, get them involved in positive regression. If you have any questions, please send them to us on Twitter at posregpod, P-O-S-R-E-G-P-O-D. David, you're always working hard. What are you working on? This week on Forbes.com, I am writing on the winners and losers of NASCAR free agency. And as I say it, I might not be that harsh on the wording, but I think you catch my drift. Uh, whose lives were made much better after securing their deals and whose uh, might not be. That will be a two-part piece coming this weekend so be on the lookout for that looking forward to that david i will be heading to martinsville uh hopefully for a night race in on friday night on fs1 for the truck series so much good drama coming off of uh texas and uh i hope that plays you know look again i'm a storyteller i hope that continues when we see martinsville as they set the championship field uh ultimately for phoenix so i'll be on pit road for that that will be a lot of fun 
Uh, what else? Uh, check my uh, Twitter account. Apologies. Check my Twitter account because this week on the A-list was Brad Keselowski, a driver who's been a, an A-lister for damn near a decade in the Cup Series. So a really good stuff and a fun story about his A-team van. Yes, if you're old enough to remember the A-team, Brad Keselowski has an A-team van, and I hope you watch our A-list episode. <laughs> so it turned out pretty good. Uh, like I said, good episode, episode 85 of Positive Regression. For David Smith, I'm Alan Kavana. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week. To show you how easy it is to file a claim with GEICO, we hired a nature show host. In a native habitat of a suburban driveway, the poor victim of a broken windshield is left assessing his vehicle utterly helpless. Well, not true. If he's got GEICO, he can file a claim online, over the phone, or with his handy mobile app. But like a lone gazelle, he'll suddenly be left to fend for himself, awaiting his terrible fate. Nope. GEICO will assign him a designated claims team to help him out, too. So the gazelle gets his car fixed and everything. Wow. Nature is so cool. GEICO. Great service without all the drama.